Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 21. This is part 3. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. Right Pete, we're continuing on with chapter 21 and we're up to the part talking about how can logic help man pass to the consciousness of the new and high world. He's basically going to tell us that it can't um, unless logic itself changes. Well yeah, I mean bear in mind that the, where we've just come from in the, the previous section of this chapter, he'd already been telling us some very practical information and, and some really great history throughout history. All of these cultures, you know, even the sophisticated ones, the, the Greece and, and Egypt and so on, and I would say all of them in India, everywhere, everywhere around the world, there were initiations where people who've been there take you through this pathway. And the, the, there's no getting around any initiation. You have to pass that part that is terrible, where nobody is holding your hand, where you understand loneliness and being alone because it's you and the abyss. And once you've crossed it, then you can actually continue on this incredible journey of unfoldment. But there does come to that part. But the initiation things, the mystery schools, had all prepared you for what you were going to do as far as can possibly be prepared. And you would be in... Uh, you know, uh, even sometimes in ceremonies where you knew that there were people around, but at that point you were on your own. A lot of a lot of these ceremonies did put you in isolation. There were certain um, Egyptian mystery schools where you would be put into a stone labyrinth that was maybe um, a meter high, three feet high, and it's a labyrinth full of poisonous snakes. And you go in there, oh and they hang on, and they, it gets even worse. They then put a capstone over the top, and you're going to be in there for 21 days. Oh, my God. If you're still alive when they take the capstone off, you've passed the initiation. I think that I think that Bispensky is going to talk to us about a way that isn't quite as severe as that one. Yes, yes. And I, <laughs> I will say, <laughs> even if you are loathing of mathematics, it's probably less than loathing of that last initiation. I'm here to tell you that I would dedicate my life to mathematics rather than go through the Egyptian mystery school initiation. I, I'm, I'm 100% on board with you there. So Spensky does say that uh, we've seen that mathematics has already found a path into the higher order of things, and he's here talking about the second mathematics. Yeah, uh, I agree with that, says, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he says it penetrates those fundamental axioms. Well, it 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 loses them. It, it renounces them, I think, is the word he uses. Is, Sorry, is that, yes, you're I, right. Does it, he say that? Does he say renounces? I yes. thought he said renounces. He renounces them. Penetrating there, it first of all renounces its fundamental axioms of identity and difference. Because that's, that's important, isn't it? Because when we identify and put labels on things we are automatically seeing them as different from something else so if we label a tree that's a tree we know that it's not a um bicycle mm. okay for example because bicycle is something else 
And what the new mathematics does, once it's renounced those axioms, is understands that there's only one thing. So that tree is also not tree, which means yes. which means that it is also bicycle. <laughs> so having renounced those, <laughs> or not a bicycle, or Whatever. not, or not <laughs> yeah. bicycle, it's it's all of those things, isn't it? It's the it's it's infinitely large and infinitely small at the same time because infinite infinity is both of those things. Yes, and none of them potentially. And none of them. Yes, so off we go. Moving on. Let's just refresh our memories on what he means. He says, in the world of infinite and fluent magnitudes, a magnitude may be not equal to itself, a part may be equal to the whole, and of two equal magnitudes, one may be infinitely greater than the other. So there you go. totally opposite to the logic of Aristotle and Bacon. Yeah, absolutely. And the problem with that is that even it, it sounds absurd, but it's only absurd because we have to use the language that we have at our disposal to describe it. And our language is not suitable to describe it. No, it's not. And this is this is one of the things that uh, Spensky points out all the way know, through the book, isn't it? Constantly. That, that language yeah. is not, not the thing. So what Spensky says is, but the mathematics of finite and constant numbers is itself the calculation of relations between non-existent magnitudes, i.e. an absurdity. And then his point from that is, and therefore only that which from the standpoint of this mathematics seems an absurdity can be the truth. Yeah, so basically he's saying, he's saying that what seems to be logical from the standpoint of that previous mathematics cannot be the truth. Only something that seems absurd to the old mathematics and logic can possibly be the truth. Nothing else. Right? So that's what he's saying. So, so when you're sitting there doing all of your calculations using the old mathematics, you've wasted your time because it's fake. It can only, it's, it's an illusion that can, only, that can only have any relevance within an illusion. Truth on the other hand, has to go to this thing that seems completely absurd to that old logic and mathematics. It's a good point he makes. Yeah. I, I like the fact that he, he sort of pointed out that it's it's almost like something, it's comparing relations between something that's not real and something else that's not real and, and, and making something real out of it. It's just not, not, it's nonsensical to do that. Well, there you go. But it, that's how the real world is. That's how, well, I shouldn't say world because that makes it seem like it's just, we're talking about a part of something. What we're talking about is the whole. He did, we, I, I know that there's something that ends this chapter that is relevant to, to this, um, but I'm not going to say it now. No spoiler alert just yet. No spoilers. So Spensky continues. So he's saying, well, if, if, Mathematics has to find a new mathematics with new axioms. Logic is going to have to do the same thing. But in order for logic to do that, it has to annihilate the logic it currently has, that of Aristotle and Bacon, and come out with a new and higher logic that, that explains things the same way as this new mathematics does. Yeah, well, I mean, without actually doing it, um, as Spensky points out, in the Critique of Pure Reason, Kant actually is quite clear that there is a possibility of a logic that that goes beyond the logic of this world, and he understands that we need to uh, we need to work with this transcendental logic, otherwise we're never going to get anywhere near the truth. Does he say about what 
this transcendental logic is per se. He doesn't. He doesn't. He just, because Kant doesn't. Kant just, in the critique of pure reason, Kant only says there has to be a logic beyond this one for, okay. us, to go, for, yeah. for us to try to explain it further. We can't explain the reality in terms of the logic that we have now. And guess what? In all the time that's passed, which is a couple of hundred years or so since Kant said that, we still haven't found it. So there you go. We have to use transcendental logic. Um, a lot of people may, well, I say a lot, I don't know, some people may have heard the word transcendental. It, it became very famous in the 1960s and 70s because transcendental of transcendental meditation. meditation, yes. And so it becomes a phrase that people know without actually deconstructing it to know what that that um, phrase means and what the 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 word actually means but transcend transcend if you hit, take the word transcend go beyond trans means a distance a journey something further away so transcend transcendental meditation was meditation that takes you beyond your standard everyday consciousness and transcendental logic will do the same for logic it'll take you beyond this new logic so we shouldn't get tied up with with words but he does but Kant definitely use transcendental logic which of course Spensky puts in um italics in my book yeah in mine as well that's why I was I was curious because I think well Spensky certainly does start giving us pointers in this chapter and, and beyond but um it, the fact that he's put it in italics I thought you know we could do with a little bit more explanation well well, how can you? Because he's all he's doing is quoting somebody, somebody that people respect as a philosopher, who pointed that there has to be a logic beyond it without okay. doing, without doing the mathematics and all the other nonsense to try and to try to prove it. Why would you try to prove it when you can't using the tools at your disposal? But he, yeah, he was, but his point is that look, I'm telling you that we have to have this new logic and this new mathematics, and it's not just me. Immanuel Kant, who most of you will have heard of, uh, also said it. He was mm. telling you. But more importantly, far more importantly, is what comes next. Yes. So, so forget Aristotle and forget Bacon. Way earlier than that, we have these Hindu scriptures, which do contain the formula for higher logic. And that is really interesting because... It's almost like they've been thrown out. Bacon and Aristotle have come in and gone, oh, you know, this is the way it is. All these keys have been put into into a basket of this is not important, and it's almost like they've been purposely lost. Okay, Aristotle, I'll be I'll be a little more uh, careful because there are things that you can't can't really know. But I will say um, that Aristotle was working only on the basis of the 3D materialistic positivistic world. So when, when Aristotle talks, and everybody talks about him as though he's so clever, maybe he was, um, he's only talking in those terms, he doesn't go beyond it. Whether or not that's intentional, whether or not he is part of something that's set up to make the world of illusion seem like the world of reality, so that um, humanity can remain easily controlled and enslaved by other people who would be Aristotle's masters. I don't know. I cannot go there. I can with Bacon, though. Bacon definitely was. Bacon Bacon is a tool of those that know the illusion and that would keep everybody else asleep 
from understanding it. So, so that's that's interesting because the thing is, all these scriptures were there first, and and then and then boom. Now I, I will point out something else that we already pointed out. Well, I certainly have plenty of time. Is Uspensky's connection with Gurdjieff, because it's Gurdjieff that did all of these travels into the east and into unknown places. And if you look for his work, Meetings with Remarkable Men, you'll you'll understand what Gurdjieff discovered that had been hidden from us. You know, we go to places like India, we colonize it, and we look at those people and thousands of years of sophisticated um, society, and we look at them as though they're just savages. We 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 really we really are putting them at the level of the sophisticated savage rather than the cunning savage but we are looking at them as though they are small people when they did things that we hadn't even achieved and so these writings when somebody like Gurdjieff goes out there and starts bringing them back to the west um, also to be fair um, to be fair to the British there were there were British uh, people that went out there um, have a look at the work of um, General Fuller who certainly did incredible work on the Kabbalah and, and, and other stuff and was associated with magical orders like the, the Golden Dawn and so on. And, and there are lots of people that came out of that. There's a great movie, well, great movie, it's not great, but it's a movie that does touch upon this uh, called Hellraiser by Clive Barker. And the guy that brings the box, the guy that becomes the pinhead, the, this sort of demonic figure, um, gets there by being out in the far reaches of empire and finding this puzzle box, and he solves the puzzle box, a bit like a Rubik's cube, but it opens some gateways, etc., etc. But these people were going out there, bored to death. Something in them sparked. Let's have a look at what these people are doing and what they. And it's like, oh my God, it's like a big awakening for some of them. Some of them, and they brought this stuff back. Um, you know, Alan Bennett, not the playwright, for God's sake, but. A guy called Alan Bennett, who was a mentor of Alistair Crowley, who was pretty much responsible for bringing yoga uh, to the West. You know, these these people did go out and bring some back, but from Aspensky's point of view, um, it, this would have a lot of this would have come from uh, Gurdjieff and and his association with Gurdjieff. So oh, it's okay. interesting that we say. get we get this, you know. And I love this phrase in the ancient Hindu scriptures. The formulae of this higher logic were given, opening the doors of mystery. But the meaning of these formulae were rapidly lost. They were preserved in ancient books, but remained there as some strange mummeries of extinguished thought, the words without real content, because they were sealed off from ordinary people. The mystery schools then became secret and impenetrable, and then ordinary people just get the words without really knowing what it means. A bit like the Bible. I you know, I, I know and have known a lot of people in the pagan world and everything and, and it's just such a neat it's it literally is an Egypt like oh the Bible it's all just stupid stories. It's all for it's like, you know, well, try reading it because it's not. It's just inaccessible to you because you have locked the door yourself. You've locked yourself in your own prison. So, but these these ancient scriptures, the same thing happened. As soon as people from the West, like us, it's usually the British, get there, it's like, oh bloody hell, we better not have people understanding this. 
but perhaps perhaps in their own cultures too the you know the the this is why the mystery schools were difficult to get into and my understanding of the mystery schools too is that they didn't want the content lost again hang on hang on they these these works are always available they were always available to everybody just like the bible's available here now to everybody what they do is close off the understanding of the meaning and that's what Gurdjieff is saying here the words remain but they're just mummeries with no meaning okay but those in the mystery schools still have the meaning you have to find somebody that understands them and works with them and that's not easy just like it's not easy to get into a magical order now you know anything that's like i say if it's on the internet and you can find it easily it ain't worth having they it won't be real then there might be a few words here and there that are real but most of it it's fake as people pretended they've not done it so anyway moving on so moving on so Spencer says new thinkers discovered the principles um expressed them in words but again they remained incomprehensible Again, they suffered transformation into some unnecessary ornamental of words, but the idea existed, and that's the bit is italicized. So even though the words, you know, people might have tried to explain it in words where they're not, it's not a concept that can be properly explained in words. This is what I think he's saying. The idea existed, and then he says, um, a consciousness of the possibility of finding and establishing the laws of the higher world was never lost. Hang on. He doesn't say it's it existed in mine. He says it persisted, and it's in italics. Even though people tried and failed, the idea still persisted. Nevertheless, read it like that, and then you get an understanding of it. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't exist. It persists. Yeah. Well, he's revised his word then because uh, yeah, I've got uh, in my and, version and that, existed. That, yeah. Because this is this is more important. Because what he's actually getting at is the idea that even though the real meaning um, was perhaps lost, or I would suggest locked away intentionally, and people did try to get their heads around it and couldn't. Nevertheless, within the human psyche, within human consciousness, the idea of that truth persisted, and people were still constantly driven to try to do something about it. And then he says uh, that mystical philosophy never looked at Aristotle as the font yeah. of all knowledge, per se. Yeah, all-embracing and all-powerful, as, he, as he's putting it. No, it didn't. The mystery schools take all of this rational nonsense, and they know what it is, and, and they ignore it because they know it, it's meaningless. It will do for the masses to keep them controlled, which is why I said what I did about Aristotle. Even back then, people were being controlled and people were being used to do the controlling. And these people are the these people are the ones who are respected in their day. So Aristotle, Bacon, and so on, the people that really run the show that do know everything and experience this. They don't just know it. Remember, you can't just know it without experiencing this. And they know the reality, and they control the world. And there it is. I'm I'm I mean, might as well come straight out and say that because I I I yeah. know that that's the the fact of it. The mystery schools didn't ever pay any attention to it and i'm suggesting that because the mystery schools are at a place where they are part of the control mechanism of humanity it's never been any different certainly not since the fertile crescent so Spensky's saying that what they have done the this mystical philosophy is they've built a system outside of logic 
or above logic and they've unconsciously gone along those paths that um, were paved in, a, in remote antiquity. Well, that's his words. So even though we've lost a lot of the meaning because it's been removed from our grasp per se, they haven't. They've, they're, they're continuing on with that. They've got it. Yeah, they have. And that's the fact of it. Um, the higher logic, he says, is intuitive logic. It is because you, you intuitively know where, when you've accessed some form of truth. And I like how he calls it the logic of infinity, the logic of ecstasy. This feeling of bliss and ecstasy is an ever-present in people who search for and reach this state, whether it's Sartorian, it's over in a flash, or whether it's a more persistent state that you can actually, to an extent, control your, your connection with. Um, but it's all, it always talks about bliss. Doesn't matter which mystery school. And, the, and those words are there and are the same no matter where you look. Um, in the Christian teachings, they are there. They, it's still there. The bliss of heaven, for example, is a phrase. Uh, just one. And the paths are all there. So, yeah, brilliant. So, I think the thing is, too, that Ospensky is talking about there are keys. There are keys that you can access this with. Um, but you've got to recognise that there are keys. So he's saying not only is this logic possible, but it exists and has existed from time immemorial. Uh, it has been formulated many times. It has entered into philosophical systems as their key, but for some strange reason has not been recognised as logic. I, I would say that it's not a strange reason. I'd say that I've already articulated what the reason is. I think even I think Uspensky knew that as well. I think that's a, a little phrase you know that he's chucked in there. Yes, because Uspensky doesn't normally say something like, "But for some strange reason, <laughs> you know, he would just say it has not been recognised as logic." Okay, let's let's continue then. So, look, the next uh, paragraph again has a, a real gem in it. Uspensky gives us a real key to where to find something about these formulas of the higher laws of logic. And his sentence is, the most precise and complete formulation of the laws of higher logic I find in the writings of Plotinus in his On Intelligible Beauty. And he's not going to give us anything more about that right now, but he will. He promises in the succeeding chapter to give us some more. But I think that's great because he's giving us, you know, if you want to know some more about this, go to these writings trawl through them yourself and i think it's it's a great pointer because we've been talking about remember we've been talking about these ancient works and people have tried to put them you know it, you know to bring them into a modern modern formulation aristotle never did bacon never did but um plotinus did and i would i would say um you know that you could also go to the works of hermes trismegistus not his real name by the way an Alexandrian alchemist, but uh, I think it's important to give people this this idea because because I, I think because yeah right now we're going to come on to something really spectacular. I love that I love how this chapter goes on. Yeah, me too. So let's move on with uh, getting on to the next bit of the chapter then. So there, Spensky continues and he says, I have called this system of higher logic tertium organum because for us it is the third organ of thought after those of Aristotle and Bacon. The first was the Organon, the second Novum Organum, 
and the third existed earlier than the first. And I, that last sentence, I think, is really interesting, that the third existed earlier than the first. Yeah. Well, the, fir- the first, the Aristotelian uh, logic, existed long after the texts existed that he talked about earlier, those Hindu texts. They came way before this. And by the way, we mentioned Hindu texts, but there are plenty of others that are way beyond uh, the time of Aristotle. And some, and there's plenty of texts that we lost. Um, you may want to ask yourself why Alexandria, the Alexandria Library was destroyed and burned and, and ruined, but that's another story. Um, the fact of it is that all of this, this um, understanding of logic and of accessing other altered states of consciousness. Let's talk about that now. This was this was the the way of looking at, at life, and it was part of life. It wasn't something separate. It wasn't something spooky and way out there that only a few people did or knew about. Everybody knew. Everybody knew. Didn't mean that everybody was accessing, but everybody knew and accepted and understood it. And then it became hidden. We all became, we all had this idea of logic of the, the world we live in now as though it's real and everything changed. So yeah, it's been there. It's been there forever. It's been written down for longer than Aristotle and Bacon have been around for thousands of years more longer, earlier, really. And I think what's interesting is that Aristotle and Bacon are revered as, you know, the, the great thinkers. However, the cracks are definitely appearing, and if you read, you know, a book like, say, this book, it's pointing out where the, where the absurdities are, which would make you start looking back at these other things that looked absurd and go, hang on a second, maybe they were the right the right way of thinking. This is this is the um, it's sort of another key, you know, that these people who set themselves up as the font of all knowledge, well, maybe they're not so knowledgeable after all. They're just they're just uh, popular. Yeah, you know, they had a good press. They had a good hype. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, look back at the 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 things that were there before with new eyes, different eyes. Not 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 looking at the words, looking at the meaning, and you know, uh, questioning. And I think that's that's the big thing. Questioning. Well, hang on a second. That's hard. That doesn't make sense. What does it really mean? But not skipping over it. If you take the works of, for example, Aristotle and Bacon, since since these are the ones that we're now setting up to to knock straight into the into the stands, what I will say is quite simple. If you want a method of working in this world of illusion, the world of positivism and 3D reality, then they are great. They do explain it. If you want to go beyond it, if you know that there's something beyond it and you want to access whatever's there, the transcendental experience, uh, then you have to put them to one side and look elsewhere. So, you know, I am not, I'm not going to knock them down. Um, I'm not going to knock Aristotle and Bacon down. I'm going to say they do a good job of explaining the material world. But beyond that, they are non-existence. The problem we have is that the perception of them by other, by, you know, the mass of people is that, their view of the world is the only view of the world. And there is their, yeah. their, their model of their reality is the ultimate reality. And that's where the problem lies. It doesn't lie with what they've done. If you just see it as a model 
to help you get through an understanding of the positive world that we're having an experience in or having an experience of, um, then great. That's they're, they're fabulous little guidebooks, aren't they? It's a bit, you know, it's, it's a bit like getting a guidebook to a new city. And as a soul, you've come here. You've come to the third dimension. Welcome to the third dimension. You may want to look at. And, and there's Aristotle's work and there's Bacon's work to help you. Kant's critique of pure reason too and so on. But, you know, there, there are lots of works that do that. So let's not knock it. They're good guidebooks for this dimension, but that's as far as it can go. What we need is to access the, the reality beyond this illusion so that's the tertium that's the tertium organum yeah and uh this next this next sentence of uh, aspensky's i think is great it says man master of this instrument may open the door of the world of causes without fear Mm. what instrument well i think of this uh this third uh way of thinking i think what he's saying is that we actually have the ability to understand this third way of thinking and that mm. will open the door to the world of causes. Yeah, and I actually say, and, I, and I, I'll keep saying this, that I like the way that Spensky is now using so many different ways of describing the, rea- the infinite reality beyond this 3D, this enclosed 3D reality. This, because the world of causes is no different than saying the kingdom of heaven. Oh, yes, you're right there. Yeah. And and many other ways of saying and that. many other ways thing. of saying it, yeah, yeah. So so we're looking at we're, he's putting in a lot of different phrases, and he's put it in um, italics in my version of the book, the world of Mine causes, too. so that so that we we are drawn to the idea that this is something that we should look at. Also, very interesting choice of words, isn't it? The world of causes. In other words, nothing has its causal basis here. We only experience the results of something that is caused elsewhere beyond this dimension everything we see do think everything we believe we experience here does not have its origin here it has its origin somewhere else beyond this third dimension hence referring to beyond this as the world of causes so do you think the the fact that he's talked a few paragraphs up about saying the higher logic um, existed before deductive and inductive logic, and he's calling this higher logic intuitive logic. So do you think what he's saying is master of this instrument could be our, our, our instrument of intuition? Well, I think intuition's a big part of it because you have to go with what you feel. But that's why everybody's experience is different because there's an infinite number of ways of having the experience. So when he says master of this instrument, it's kind of implying that that we are in control of it. It's something that we command the use of it and we know how to use it. I'm not sure that, no, I don't think he's saying that. I think think that this is one of those, those uses of literary language it's almost poetic where you have to imply other words in that sentence. So, for example, if I read it like this, it would make more sense. Man, when he becomes master of this instrument, of this key, may open the door of the world of causes without fear. That makes more sense to me. Far more sense. So, I, yeah. No, you, well, 
because because the point the point is um, that we have to do the mastery work before we we then have the key that can open the door without fear. Yeah, and the, and it's interesting he says without fear because he has spent the beginning of the chapter talking about how fearful Terri- it is. It is terrifying, yeah. and so. yet he's saying you can do it without fear. Yeah, I, I'm wondering if that's what what that means if he's if this experience is fearful well this is the pro this is the process of the mystery schools and the training that you do before your your right of initiation it is to prepare you for it nothing can take you to it and there will be that little uh, of fear but you will go into it knowing that you're going to have that little uh, spike of fear that it will be very temporary and then when you get past it which you will that there is something extraordinary that lies beyond it and you also know that you can and will come back to the here and bring that new learning that new understanding with you to here and you will be an evolved consciousness here and is that the mastering of the instrument well yeah well yeah the mastering of the instrument is the the taking you to the point of initiation because that's yeah it's not the mastery it doesn't come You've got other work to do when you come back, but the, what he's talking about here is the point, getting to the point where you open the door without fear. So this is the initiation path, and it's a mystery school. Oh, path. I see, I see. Yeah, that that makes sense now. Mm. I think it's a it's a it's probably one of those sentences that, as you pointed out before, is aimed at one audience, being mm. two audiences for this book. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. That's how it is. So you know we're we're fine. We're good. We know that we we know no, but we know that we've got got it within us to do this because people have. We just need to find how to master the way of doing it without fear. And when we do, that gives us the key to actually experiencing it. We we will go over. We we can do it, and we can evolve spiritually. Evolve consciously evolve you can come back as an evolved consciousness a higher consciousness and bring back all of that knowledge and what that can do for us here that's yeah that's 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 beautiful then isn't it that's what he's mm. what he's saying is uh well earlier on in an earlier podcast you asked why do people do this that's why yeah. people do this oh well it's pretty good eh? it's pretty good and what I think is, you know, like it's evident that I haven't done it, <laughs> but uh, but the fact that the book is pointing to something that's possible, and you know what, it, it starts that thinking. Well, uh, there's something more. I mean, you know, you know something. You know, there, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of people in the world, and always have been, that wouldn't question this idea of a spiritual, a consciousness existence beyond this reality. The ones that would deny it are the rationalists, the ones that got really stuck in 16th and 17th century and 18th century rationalism, uh, especially, and they never, they never evolved beyond that way of thinking. So we're talking about the scientists, the mathematicians and so on of Uspensky's time, and even more so now, I would say. And Uspensky is aiming this book at them. The mass of the population doesn't need this explanation, this complex explanation. They don't. I'm not saying that everybody tries it and succeeds with it, but they just know it's there and they accept that there is something higher and something beyond. Um, it's the rationalists that Uspensky has to say, hang on, look, look guys, um, stop it, because you're actually locking humanity into a cage. 
You're locking humanity into a cage. You're making hum humanity's experience very, very narrow. And, that's, and this is who he's speaking to in this book. Those scientists, those rationalists, those mathematicians. He isn't speaking to a general population. He's trying to, get, he's trying to find a way of, of, of getting the rationalists to um, expand their point of view because they are the authorities that people have been taught to listen to. And, it's, and that, that turning science and, and into a new religion is crushing the freedom of humanity. And I think pretty much that's what I, without, without putting it in those words, I think that was um, Uspensky's idea for writing this book, to get scientists yeah. and mathematicians out of that, that set. But when somebody has made you king, you, you're not really going to readily step off that throne, are you? You're not going to step down from the throne. No, you're going to rally your army, I would imagine. It's a, and, that's, and that is exactly what maths and science, aided by a stupid media, has done, is it not? Yeah, it is. It is. It's it exactly is. what's happened. But good on, good on Uspensky for putting it out there that it doesn't have to be like this. Yeah. You know, yeah. you rationalists, uh. and And those that follow the rationalists, because if we've made them king, then... Uh, the only way they're not king is if we all walk, turn around and go, oh, hang on, you're not king. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's absolutely correct, you know, which is why I mentioned the gullible, stupid, moronic media. The media serve the purpose of the new religion without even knowing that they are serving its purpose in many cases, in most cases. They, they're already blindly following it. It's ludicrous. But there it is. That is where we live now. And it's worse now than it was in Svensky's day. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the world was much more open to ideas then than it is now. And even yeah. then, you know, they were stuck in the Aristotelian and uh, logic and the logic of Bacon. But I think the other thing too is that the, the way the media is now the go-to. So you get your information from what you're told on the news or from the television or, you know, movies even will we'll tell you a story about how life is or what, whatever. And less and less people are reading books of any great depth. You know, you might read yeah, a novel. Yeah. And I think that's the uh, – to get the information, you've actually got to go and start reading some of these books. The, the, the television isn't going to tell you them. Book, a book won't do it either. You've got to have experience. Now, now people sit in front of a video game instead of getting going go-karting. I mean, I say that from the point of view of motor racing because that's what I, I'm interested in. But it's um, people won't go out now and do it. It's too much trouble to go out, get out of their house, let alone anything else. So even if you read the book and you don't act upon it uh, on, on what you're reading, you've wasted your time in a way. Oh, absolutely. But if you read the book, you get... Some, some other input, some other ideas that you can go, hang on a second, that's worth yeah. exploring. Yeah, I agree with you. I do agree with that. I do agree with you, you know, and just, and just saying we need to go beyond. And people used to go beyond. People did do things. Do we live in a great era of exploration now, in general? I wouldn't say so. No, no. We, no we don't, do we? We just don't. But we did. We did. We did in my lifetime, let alone anything else. And before anybody says, but there's nowhere to explore, want to bet? There's tons to explore. We don't do it. Everything now has to have a commercial basis. And 
commerce will say, well, it isn't worth doing that. Do you know what, though? It doesn't have to be big to explore. I go down to the lake every morning and it's just the same lake every morning, but I get a different experience every time, some, some, something new. Well, but do. if I just walk through it, if I just walk through it as a, I'm going to walk from point A to point B, I wouldn't have any of that experience. No, you wouldn't. And, and that's what people do have, none of that experience. And yeah. the, the problem is that because the idea of exploration and something unknown has been devalued at the highest level, that's, that comes down to the mass consciousness. Nobody puts any, any relevance or importance to it now. And before anybody wants to write in and say, well, I know people who are interested in exploration, I can point out for everyone that is, a billion people that are not. So, you know, there you go. Keep keep telling me. Just because you are interested in exploration doesn't mean that the masses are. The mass consciousness couldn't give us stuff. When, the, when they wanted us to be thrilled with exploration, and the last time they wanted us to be thrilled with exploration were, ended in 1969, they made it a media circus so that everybody would be in tune with it. You know which one I'm on about, 1969, moon landing. So, but, the, but do you know how quickly that got defunded and how quickly people stopped being interested in it within a year? Yeah. Simple as that. They didn't even get to complete all the missions that they planned because that was always going to be the way. They needed that for a purpose and then they changed. Anyway, so moving, much, moving on, yeah. moving on, because that's moving why we were, that's why we are stuck in the Aristotelian logic and the Bacon logic and all the rest of it. But you know, and this is this is a great, you know, when you look at why why would you write something as dense as this and as mathematical and as logical as this? It's because he's trying to persuade certain people there who were at that time on the cusp of new discovery. You know, there was there was looking to be some new mathematics and perhaps the potential for new logic uh, after the publication of special and general relativity, but it didn't happen. All they still all they did when faced with these possibilities is try to put that square peg into the old round hole. And they're still doing that to this day, except one or two courageous mathematicians uh, on on the very fringe, on the knife's edge of exploration of mathematics. Wonderful them. Yeah, wonderful them. It's a shame, it's a shame there are not more of them. That's all I can say. That's right. Absolutely. So, Spensky says that uh, our earthly language is going to be the challenge when it comes to uh, expressing new axioms because the, the only way we can do it will make it sound absurd if we use language. He says, for example, A is both A and not A. Everything is both A and not A. Everything is all. So he's saying that the, the axioms that we try to to explain the new logic, we're going to look at and go, well, that doesn't make sense which is well, probably the key, the fact they are they are the truth. It's far easier to accept that last one than it is the two, pre, the two that go before it. Everything is all. It's much easier yes. for people to accept that because, you, do you know what, we're all connected. Notice, you, you're looking at that table over there, but there is air that touches you, that touches that table. Uh, people can sort of get a concept of, okay, it's a bit airy-fairy, but um, yeah, maybe we're, you know, we're all part of the same thing and... You know, the, the butterfly effect that 
if I do something here, it might have an effect over there. So perhaps that's people can e people can more easily do that than they can go. A is both A and not A. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> there's no airy fairiness there, is there? It's, it's, it is completely absurd in our in our language. With our language. Yeah. Uh, which Spensky will, will explain a little later on in the chapter as to why that is. And I also, I also think like everything is both A and not A is another one where your head explodes. <laughs> and when you read that, it's very easy to read and go, oh, okay, I'll believe it. But when you try and think of an yeah, example, when you try to, yeah. how, how do you come up with one? When you, tr when you are trying to think of an example, what you are actually attempting to do is experience it. Because you know that you yes. actually, you intuitively know that there are no words that can describe it. So what you're trying to do is get that experience of it in your head. And this is where the mystery mm. schools and crossing the abyss get you to have the experience of it. Ah, yes, I see what you're saying. Another reason why you would do that. Yeah. That's it, it's, isn't it's, it? That's, yeah. Because yeah. there's no it's, words. There's no words to explain it because obviously they're giving it a, a red-hot go here. And you're right, you know, they are giving it a red-hot go and it's the best go that they can do. But as Spensky says, doesn't he, they are not the axioms of higher logic, they are merely attempts to express the axioms of this logic in concepts. You know, he says, it's not getting anywhere near it, but it's the best mm. we can do. And, and then further says, when we encounter such an inexpressibility, it means that we have touched the world of causes. And that's why I say that when you try to think about a phrase, you know, like that A is both A and not A, when you try to grasp what that means, you are there, you're on the edge. You've Something inside you is sparking you to want that experience. So the logical formula A is both A and not A corresponds to the mathematical formula a magnitude can be greater or less than itself. So he's, Spensky's now saying, well, okay, let's, let's try and tie this new logic up with this new mathematics because they're, they're, you know, I think in his opinion, they're kind of intrinsically related. But again, he says, you know, of course, the absurdity as such is indeed not an index of the attributes of noumena but the attributes of noumena will certainly be expressed in what are absurdities to us. I think yeah. he, 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 go, he goes on a little later to say that, you know, these attributes of noumena, I think, I think he's given the impression that absurdity is an attribute of noumena, like if something's absurd, then it's pointing to truth. Yeah, but it's only absurd to us, That's it? Yeah. It's, it's so it's, only it's not, absurd to yeah. us. In, in the noumena... It wouldn't feel absurd at all. It wouldn't That's be exactly an absurdity. Right. So yeah. even there, you know, it's really difficult, isn't it, to, to get around that. That's it. And that's what I thought was interesting. It's like we're giving it an attribute of absurdity, but if you're in the noumena, you're not going, Well, this is absurd. It's only here we're going, yeah. This is absurd. <laughs> so so in the noumena, we wouldn't see it as the absurdity that we think it is here. So <laughs> would we would we treat it would we treat it differently? I mean, even the idea yeah. of treating it, even the idea of treating it uh, is a 3D concept anyway, because you would treat it only if you thought it was a sep something separate from you. But in the yeah. Numina, you would actually be experiencing this, everything is all. You, you can't even say you are part of the whole, because a part implies separation. 
Mm. We, there mm. is no language that can express it at all. And this is this concept of infinity, where infinity plus infinity is infinity. So it's or anything you do to infinity still comes out as infinity. So the whole and the parts are all the same anyway. It's it's a mind mind bending concept. But uh, but I think the, his real point is that uh, it's a bit of a key for us. If if something seems absurd then that might be a pointer that what we're doing is we're starting to sense the world of causes as opposed to this illusory, phenomenal world. Go on, then explain me this. To hope to find in the world of causes anything logical from our standpoint is just as useless as to think that the world of things can exist in accordance with the laws of a world of shadows or stereometry according to the laws of planimetry. Yes. He's hooking in some 3D maths in there, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, well, stereometry means uh, measuring things in accordance with duality. If you think of what happened in the world of music, which is where virtually everybody gets their idea of stereo from, it's the idea of having more than one and different sound sources making up a whole. So you record in stereo. If your stereo recording has a guitarist on the left of the stage and the singer on the right, the, the vocal will come out of the right speaker and the guitar will come out of the left speaker. It's what happens in stereo recording. It's supposed to be more lifelike, more, more of a representation of the reality of what you have. But that's where we get stereo from, and that's why he's talking about stereo here. You notice that when we talk about stereo as well, it's not just sound. Did you ever see those... 3D like things when you were a kid you could put those 3D glasses to your head and put slides in them yes like, yes and things it's and yes. it's called stereometry because you're using both eyes to look at a 2D image basically it's stereo stereo means that but when he talks about planimetry we're talking about a single plane of existence so we're talking about metrics and measurements based on a single plane which we don't know how to do with our 3D stereo, stereo imagery. And this world of shadows, I think it is good, it's telling good name, us that... It? Yeah, I love that because it's, it's, it's kind of got a little bit of a, a link to the um, Plato's, the cave analogy as yeah, well. Yeah, you know. it does. And that's, that's where he's gone back to, isn't it? The world of shadows. Yeah, he has. And uh, yes, and, and, it, and it's, it explains it to a T because if you are watching a shadow on the wall and then making up your world as what those are... Um, it's, it's it's just uh, so unreal to what the world of causes is, as uh, as the shadows on the wall are. Read the next bit. This is cool. To master the fundamental principles of higher logic, this means to master the fundamentals of the understanding of a space of higher dimensions or the world of the wondrous. Yep, and you won't be able to do that unless you experience it. Because as we've just shown time and time and time again, you can't explain it in the language that we have. Mm. So you can't master this by reading any book. You've got to go out and do it. Simple as that. And he's, he's, he's metallicized space of higher dimensions. So I think this concept that, you know, how we talk about time is basically a space. It's just, it's just a space in another dimension. I think that's what he's referring to the understanding of a space of higher dimensions. So no time. Yeah, there is no time there. That's right. 
that's why I think, yeah, he's italicised it and said, you know, being specific about that. Yeah, doesn't matter what he says, though. He's still using this language. You've got to go there. And that's that's the real point he's making. You've got to go. You've yes. got to make the effort. Yes. Continuing on. Uh, in order to approach to a clear understanding of the relations of the multidimensional world, we must free ourselves from all the idols of our world. And uh, he... he he puts the idols in quotes and uh, our world in italics, and I think he's going to explain this, but uh, this this is something you've talked about before when you talked about the abyss. It's sort of like suddenly everything that you uh, anchored yourself to is no longer there, and that's I think he's, that's what he's potentially talking about when he says our idols, the things that we anchor ourselves to as the basis of, of what is real. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So to... Illustrate this point, Dispensky now goes back to our two-dimensional being, and uh, I think I think it's a reasonable thing to do because it, for me, the analogy of the two-dimensional being kind of gives me a bit of an idea. But uh, he's saying that uh, if you look at the two-dimensional being, if he wanted to to become a three-dimensional being, he would first have to become three-dimensional. So. To understand the three-dimensional world, that two-dimensional being would have to stop being two-dimensional with all the framework that he's put in place so the relations between one thing and another have to let go of that because the three-dimensional existence has a new framework. For example, all those lines that the two-dimensional being would see as separate could well be all together in some other structure in the three-dimensional so, you know, they may be related, they may not be related in the three-dimensional, but they um, they could be related or not related differently in the two-dimensional. Yeah, well, they'll see, if you had a square, which is a two-dimensional plane, lying flat on a table, and you had another square joined to it, but standing upright, in other words, at a 90-degree angle to it, the two-dimensional being on that flat square lying, lying on the table would perceive the perpendicular square as a separate object, even though they're joined. Would he see the two, the, the um, perpendicular square? I would have thought it, all he would see was, was one square lying down and be totally unaware of the, the square at right angles. Why? Because the square at right angles is still a 2D object. Oh, in a plane at right angles, I see, yeah. Yeah. It's still a two-dimensional plane, but would not, yes would not see the join. They That's would see right. The, they wouldn't see the wouldn't join. See they the would join. see that as a separate thing. Mm, no, I see what you're saying. Yes, well, exactly right. So, all these concepts—well, that's the wrong word to use—but all all these relations in the in the two-dimensional world, you'd have to let go of all of them because they will not have any no, relevance in the three-dimensional. Yeah. So some of the key sentences that are spent, because I'm not going to go through this whole two-dimensional uh, example because the key points I'll pull out. But, uh, I mean, the, the first key point is if you're a two-dimensional being and you want to liberate yourself from the two dimensions into the three dimensions, first of all, and most important, it's understanding what you see doesn't really exist, I think is what he's saying. First of all, the first thing you have to do is say, okay, Everything that I think exists in its real sense doesn't exist as I see it. When you accept that, then you're on the step to, well, how do I, how do I experience that? And then you're on a journey, aren't you? 
Well, your first yeah. job is, which means that you have to take the old logic and you have to say, well, that only takes me so far. So I'm putting that to one side and I'm going to search for something new that allows me to experience this thing that the, that the old logic says that I shouldn't be able to. Mm. So we, in, in other words, there is, a, there is a word that explains this perfectly. It's called faith. Yes. You have to do this on faith. Faith is the one where you've had this, you had this stirring, whatever stirred it, that says there's something else I want to experience it. And then the faith is what takes you along to do it. Um, because it could take years. It could be expensive. It used to be. It used to be both of those things. Good though. Well, you've got to have that faith you because everything that everything that you read tells you that it doesn't exist. Right. So the faith is that you know it exists. You know yeah. that there is something more. Mm. Yeah. And I that and, makes sense. and and then and then to pursue it you need faith because there's nothing, is there? There's nothing in the old way of thinking that will give you a, a clear path to do it yes you can't rely on what you've been taught no and even though even though there are many many books especially now that talk about magic and um spirituality and so on and they all have exercises and breathing and yoga and all these things you know plus magic <laughs> um as well it's a case of yes you have the faith that there's something else but which path am I going to take? Do I go down the Eastern mystical path? Do I go to India? Do I spend time at an ashram and, and learn the fundamentals of the path that I want to go on? Do I work with alchemy and magic? Which, by the way, is probably the easiest way for those of us in the West to go. Um, and right now, there are lots, and, and there always have been really, books that, that will give you the keys to that. Um, but you, you, you've got a million choices to make. Your faith is what tells you that you're going on the path. Your intuition is what tells you which of those paths is right for you. They all lead to the same place. Yeah. And for the two-dimensional being, that consists of same thing. understanding that what yeah, what you see is not what you get. Yeah. That that you know that there is something beyond this. There's an understanding that's beyond this. Yes. And if another two-dimensional being has been there and comes back and tells the other two-dimensional beings you know that that you, you see that square that's at a ninety degree angle to us. Um, it's not separate, you know. We're all part of the same thing. Go go here and find out. Go to the three D world and find out. God, it's amazing there. Um, in fact, in fact, I've written a book. <laughs> but they could have two effects. They could say that's mental, or they could say, really, let's have a look at that. Um, and then and then those those of them with an intuition will say, yeah, that feels right. I, I, how do I find it? You know, this. so to me, you know, we don't need to go back to the example of the 2D creature because it's exactly the same for them as it is for us. And that's what Ospensky is saying. It first of all has to rid itself of the idols of two-dimensional existence before it can start to perceive and experience the ones beyond it. In this case, the third dimension. And he then sort of says that, you know, part of that is overcoming the sureness and the correctness of its categories. And so, you know, like for us, that's overcoming what we've been taught as this is real, science, mathematics, etc., and uh, this type of thing or that type of thing, and they're either related or they're not related based on our concepts, like that tree and that tree are both trees, for example, a concept of trees. Yeah, exactly. So... That's, that's what he's saying. Yeah. yeah, we've got to overcome all of that. 
all of those idols that we've spent the whole book going through. Uh, we overcome them, or you're going nowhere. So shall I skip all the way to the part where he says, where are our, our idols? So he's sort of looking at the two-dimensional being and going, well, okay, if you were two-dimensional trying to become three-dimensional, these are the things you have to overcome. You have to overcome the collective name for things, the name for things even. Yeah, it's the names. Yeah, that's right. You've got to you've got to understand the collective name rather than, you know, the individual names because they're separation. He gives a fantastic example below. You know what I mean, John, John and Peter. I mean, he says like the most simple sentence. John and Peter are both men. For the two-dimensional being, this will be an absurdity. It will represent the idea to itself after this fashion. John and Peter are both Johns and Peters. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> I do. I think it's so cool. In other words, <laughs> in other words, every one of our logical propositions will be an absurdity to it. Why is this so clear? Such a being has no concepts. The proper nouns which cons constitute the speech of such a being have no plurals. Yes, it's like for a two-dimensional being. You cannot use that logic in 3D anymore if you're going to come no, in. you cannot. So it's easy to understand that any plural of our speech will seem to it an absurdity. So there you've got the two-dimensional being, and there it is. It recognises a square on one, on one two-dimensional plane, and joined to it, it sees a triangle joined to it against one of the axes of the planes and at a different angle to it. What it won't say are uh, square and triangle are both geometric shapes. What it will see is yeah. triangle and square. It won't understand the concept of geometric shapes or even shapes. Yeah, and if it saw a second triangle, it would say square, triangle, triangle. Yeah, that's the one it would do. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be able to say. What about if it saw an equilateral triangle and an isosceles triangle? It, would, it wouldn't be able to say there are two triangles. No. It would just say isosceles, isosceles equilateral. That's what it would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it may not even look at them as triangles. It might say a Peter and a John. <laughs> no, but exactly. That's what I'm saying. It, it isn't seeing them as triangles. It doesn't understand the concept of triangle. It understands isosceles and equilateral. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't see the fact that they've all got three sides. And that the sum of the angles of the interior angles are the same in both triangles. It doesn't see that. No. Which, no. by the way, they are. So, you know. It's... And to come into the three dimensions, that would be frightening because everything that they knew has gone. Yeah. yeah. And they have to start building a new foundation to understand a new dimension. Yeah. That's right. So, Ospensky continues with. Where are our idols? From what shall we liberate ourselves in order to pass to an understanding of the multidimensional world? And well, you might ask. I think that that's a great question. And well, he tells us. And he does. <laughs> so he uh, he has a lot, lot to say. He says, by relinquishing the hold on us of positivism, which is in, in effect dualism, and the axioms of logic and recognise the unreality of the divisions we place on things like um, something and something's opposites. Okay. That's part of our idols. He says something really good, really practical. We must understand 
and then in italics, mentally, all the illusoriness of the world perceived by us in space and time. I know that the, again in italics, real world cannot have anything in common with it. Now, here's, this is why this is important, because you can start off without going directly to the spiritual. You can try to find, you can have a mental understanding. In other words, you can say, you've read in a book that there is a world beyond the 3D world and that everything is all one and that this world is just an illusion. You haven't experienced it, you have no feeling for it, but you understand it mentally. It's a process that you're prepared to explore. So in other words, you can read a book and, and say that stimulated something in me. I, I really don't know how to experience it, but and I can't see it, but I yeah, that makes sense to me. So you have you can have this mental starting point, but you won't experience yeah. it mentally. You have to go beyond that. But it can be a starting point for people. Just having a discussion about it, reading a book about it, that's mental. Yeah, to even stretch beyond what, what you actually know and think, oh, there was is something beyond it. Mm. That's it. Just just saying that. It says that in maths, the idea of infinity and in logic, the idea of monism will help us free ourselves from our 3D idols. Uh, and and he, he talks about Aristotle and Bacon. Mm. Um, Which is dualistic. Dualistic. Yep. And so that's, the dualism is probably our biggest stumbling block because as soon as we, we entertain dualistic thinking uh we're on the wrong track well as a hypnotist i can tell you that if you continue the exercise of seeing everything as connected as all one thing even though you're only doing that intellectually mentally as he put it earlier eventually that will come to be your reality you will you will as Spensky says here um actually make it part of your reality you know you will assimilate the idea of monism and thus, you will start to dethrone the idol of the old logic, the duality. Yeah. But that's how you'll do it. Just keep telling yourself, everything's the same. We're all connected. Everything's connected. Everything has consciousness. It's all part of the same consciousness. It's just an expression of consciousness. Even that chair, even that rock, blah, 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 blah. You keep telling yourself, eventually it, be it becomes a part. It becomes you. It becomes an attribute of you, your consciousness. And that makes it very much easier for you to then go down the path of experience. Get it? Yeah, I get it. And I, and I like the way he's explained it too. It's, he's talking about um, the unity of all opposites. So mm -hmm. that, that uh, to remove dualism, it's basically there is no opposites. It's, it, it's taking away that concept that this is this and that is not this, that, that something is opposite. There's... And he gives a whole lot of examples um, towards that, including, you know, this good and evil concept being, you know, one being opposite mm. the other. Well, I've underlined that massively because I've said it all along throughout this book. There is no good. There is no evil. They are evil. They are just moral concepts imposed by one, uh, one society's idea of morality, which I would say actually comes from just a very few people that control that society. It's, it's, a, it's a moral judgment. And yeah, and Asvinsky's calling it out. It's calling it out. It's here. Yeah. I know he is, and he's do, he, it's right to do so. And I'm going to tell you right now that anybody that claims to be such a spiritual being, oh, God, aren't they just, and all these Ascensionistas, 
that will point out that some things are evil and some things are good, you're not spiritual at all. You're just deluding yourself. Because one of the first things you will ever learn when you have any contact with the noumena, the divine, the all, the infinite, call it what you will, is that you will learn that there is no such thing as that, that kind of duality and that everything is just what it is. Once you start judging something, evil, bad and good, you know, you're actually then putting labels onto circumstances, events, people, actions, thoughts. Um, once you start labeling, you are not spiritual at all and your claims to spirituality are vanished like that by anybody that understands anything. Well, that's what I was meant to be saying. I know he is, and he's, de he's dead right. But people will miss that, and I'm dwelling on it, because people think that they can do what, what they always do. They'll accept the bits of it that suit them, and then they'll just, they'll just ignore the bits they don't like. This, this one, I would dwell on way beyond anything else he does, because this is the one that will stop virtually everybody, virtually everybody from achieving any kind of experience with this with this numinal world this one this one more than anything good and evil because nobody that you know and i'm guaranteeing you this other than me of every single person you know they will not renounce that one that one no matter what they say about everything else they will not they will thrust their moral judgment on any action you cannot pick and choose it and everybody does this this one and it's you know he didn't have to put it in there there's millions of other examples of opposites but he has followed Nietzsche in this Nietzsche Nietzsche did say this I mean one of his books is beyond good and evil it's the title of one of Nietzsche's books so you know uh, it, it is a concept that is so difficult for people to give up you can't be part dualistic and part monistic no you can't it, yeah, you're you're either doing it or you're not. Well, this is this is where Ospensky's going with it, and he says, you know, if you're going to move forward, this duality of the world, you you've got to let it go. So, Pete, I think that's a great place to leave it because we we've still got lots more to do in this book, and this is you know a logical place to to pause for this podcast. So, um, thank you so much for another great discussion. Well, it's been brilliant. Um, yeah, and that's. That's really interesting, you know, where, where we're going now, because we're getting into practicalities. And I think, you know, at the start of this book, Spensky was careful with people's sensibilities and he no longer is. You know, it's, it's like, you know, if you're going anywhere, you've got to be able to do this. And if you want to hold on to some of your old fashioned ideas, then you're not going anywhere. And he's, it, he's spot on. He is. And he's. He's really nailing the explanations, isn't he? He's really yeah, he's yeah. giving us great, great ways of explaining it, even though he's restricted by language. Yeah, but he, everybody is. It's not like, oh, that's a problem of his. That's a problem of everybody's. As he's pointing that's right. out, you know, we can't, we can't do it, you know. And yet, because it's the only thing we've got, this is the this is the tool we have to use to try. Um, you know, the old the old story about if all you've got is a hammer, every problem starts looking like a nail. We're in, that <laughs> we're in that territory in a way, you know, in the basic, the basis is that if all you've got is a hammer and you've got to um, undo a nut from a bolt, 
then you've just got to tap gently with the hammer, haven't you? And you've got to find circumspect ways of moving that nut uh, off the bolt. And that's what, that's what we do with language when we're trying to discuss this. And that's what Espensky's doing. And I think he's doing a really good job of it. You know, because yeah, his, ex his, his explanations don't sound dated. They sound good now. You know, his analogies mm. sound good now. And, and he's, he's really into the lovely part of where we are going. I, I'm, I'm really thrilled with it. Yeah. Me too, and I, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about, you know, the, what's beyond yeah, what's coming, uh, in yeah. this chapter. So, all right, well, great, and uh, look forward to chatting with you next week, and then thank you, everyone else, for listening as well. Yeah, thanks, everyone. It's been brilliant, and I'll see you next week, Al. Bye. <laughs>